Welcome to the second part of our podcast on trade-based money laundering with Anton Mosienko of Rusi and John Draper of the Futures team at BA Systems. In the first part, we talked about some of the historical attempts to tackle trade-based money laundering, the difficulties with identifying it, and some of the patterns of behaviour. In the second part, we'll talk about some examples, incentives for organisations might want to tackle trade-based money laundering, and potential solutions. This all sounds a little bit tricky and a little bit uh, uh, sort of almost opaque. Um, the conditions that benefit legitimate trade, and I'm not talking just about free trade zones here, but worldwide trade, as, as you said, John. The conditions that benefit legitimate trade also benefit sort of almost parasitical activities like trade-based money laundering. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I, th- I think it is. There's definitely uh, a conundrum. Um, uh, and I think there's... Um, you know, relation to, to free trade zones and customs revenue, what have you, there's this complication that um, the the techniques involved in trade-based money laundering are, are tied in with so many other types of activity. Um, so if you take an, an example uh, of, of the, the goods transfer, uh, flip it round, use under-invoicing instead of over-invoicing. So it works the same way as the example we gave earlier, but um, you know, the, the, the value moves in the same direction as the trade. Um, customers might see that going through uh, as a trade and go, well, what's, what's going on here? There's, they've invoiced the goods at this high value, but actually they're, they're uh, sorry, this low value, and, the, and actually they're worth a high value because it's under invoicing. And so to customs, that might look like, ah, well, that's, that's evasion of customs duties because they would have had to pay higher duties on, on higher value goods. Um, and that's customs' job to, to deal with that. So they are, oh, okay, we've, we've got an instance here of, of uh, customs duty evasion. Um, and so they can deal with that on their own. That's, that's fine. But actually, what, what if it's not just customs duties evasion? From the criminal's perspective, that, I mean, yes, they were evading customs duties, but that wasn't really the point. That was just a side effect. That the thing they were actually doing is they were moving value between two parts of an organized criminal network. Um, and of course, the, the customs organization in that instance, well, they're never going to investigate that because as far as they're concerned, they're dealing with evasion of customs duties and they've dealt with it. They've, they've understood it. Um, and so they're actually, you know, the, Organisations like this are um, they're targeted on reducing particular types of harm in the case of customs, you know, reducing the harm to the exchequer of the, of the country they're working in, um, and they've got constrained resources. So you put those two things together, quite understandably, they will stop investigating it at the point when they've understood, oh, yeah, it's an evasion of customs duties. So it makes it a really tricky problem to, to, to be able to incentivize the level of sharing that needs to take place between organisations when it's not at all obvious whether it's just an instance of one thing or an instance of another. Mm-hmm. I guess you can also layer on top, so you can do a bit of trade-based money laundering and then commit some carousel fraud on top of that, claim the VAT back by moving, I don't know, a container load of mobile phones from one country to the other. Why not? It'd be almost rude not to. Wouldn't it? <laughs> it would indeed. Any thoughts, Anton? Yes, well, uh, clearly I think the, the challenge for, for example, customs authorities is prioritising the investments and prioritizing the enforcement efforts that they're undertaking because mm-hmm. clearly you know you, you can't realistically check every container in in every port that you have oversight over 
And one of the things that the world's customs organizations has recommended, for example, is the use of the concept of authorized economic operators, where in a way you have sort of a whitelist of good global citizens who engage in import and export operations. And because they've come through some hurdles and undergone scrutiny, you know that they're relatively unlikely to be involved in illicit trade. And so you don't necessarily scrutinize uh, their shipments to the extent that you would focus on some other high-risk consignments. And the question there is, how do you identify what is high-risk? And I think that's where the point about intelligence sharing and interacting with other law enforcement agencies comes into play. And I, I think, in fact, uh, this month, uh, one of the U.S. senators has published a proposal for doing exactly that in the U.S. and, and creating an interagency task force to focus on illicit trade transactions and um, share financial and non-financial trade information within the confines of that task force. It's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because all of that activity makes total sense um, from the perspective of um, you're, you're looking, you're, you're, you're focusing your resources on you know, which container shall I open to, to find the bad stuff or you know, which transaction to focus your effort on. But actually, if you, if you zoom out a bit and look at it as well, what we really need to understand is we need to build a rich intelligence picture of the, the activities of the organized crime networks who are doing you know, narcotics and, and human trafficking and whatever else they're doing. And the pieces of that intelligence picture are spread across bits of transactions and bits of, of, of financial settlements and bits of logistics movements and all the rest of it. And so actually, in a way, um, from that perspective, what you really need to work out is where are the best pieces of that intelligence picture and how you bring it together. And some of those pieces will be in trades that you shouldn't be looking at in terms of opening the container because you're not going to find anything. But actually, it's, an, it's a really important part of the intelligence picture. So there's this distinction between transactions that are useful from an intelligence perspective and transactions that are worth going after if you're trying to um, carry out your duties as a customs authority, for example. Excellent. I suppose that then brings us to the point of what sort of patterns and behaviours should organizations and when I say organizations it sounds like pretty much everybody um, what should they be looking out for what are the indicators um, and perhaps if you know having talked through this maybe it's very difficult to identify what those indicators are but if not indicators what would you like to see as the next sort of uh, practical steps that governments uh, banks uh, trade organizations should be looking to take or should be looking to build I mean, I guess from our perspective, having looked at um, the, the constraints and the challenges that are experienced by financial services, by law enforcement, by the logistics firms and so on in, in regard to this, the one thing that came out as a, as a constant theme across all of them was they each have reasons why they could, as an industry, as organizations, benefit from having a richer picture about the people they're dealing with, the transactions that are going through them. Not necessarily all because they care about trade-based money laundering. Actually, for lots and lots of other reasons. You know, in logistics, it's all about um, you know, there are operational risks and fraud, and there is, uh, there is a need to uh, reduce the friction of trade. It's a very low-margin uh, low uh, business. So there's lots of different reasons across those different sectors, but they, they would all benefit from a richer picture of, of who and what they're dealing with. Um, but the alignment of incentives for them to all collaborate on that and getting over the hurdles of privacy and data security and uh, commercial sensitivity uh, of sharing that data and finding a way to do that, that seems to be the key. But they, 
the incentive to do so is they can all benefit. They'll all benefit differently, but they can all benefit if they if they could find a way to get over those hurdles and uh, collaborate on building a, a, this richer picture of, of what it is that's going on in terms of global trade transactions. Yeah, I guess the positive thing as well is that all of these parties now have far richer and more accessible data sets than they've ever had before. And the, the granularity is increasing all the time. Yeah, that's certainly true. Although one of the things that stunned us um, when, when we started researching this was the uh, sheer proportion of the global trade paper trail that is literally on paper and quite often handwritten on scraps of paper. Um, so clearly there is um, there is a, a wider digital transformation going on in society and that is coming to every every one of these industries slowly but surely. Um, one of the things that, that we uh, learned was that um, a, that's happening really slowly <laughs> compared to what, what uh, you know, as an outsider, you might think, you might assume that much more global trade is digital. Very, very much of it is not at the moment. Um, but also that um, that digitalization of, of that paper-based trail is one thing. Being able to then collaborate and, and usefully draw insight out of that requires the creation of standards so that you can actually uh, you know, have a structured sharing of information to be able to make use of it and draw analytical insights across it. So that there's, a, there's a long way to go um, to, to, to make, make better use of the data that is coming. The digitalization point is indeed so important that in fact the OECD felt compelled to include it as one of the key points of their um, guidance on countering illicit trade, which they published recently. And one of the components of the guidance is increasing the transparency of free trade zones. And I think in what will sound like music to John's ears, one of the key recommendations is simply having detailed digital records that can then be accessed and shared. And I think that speaks to another issue that John has alluded to, which is the importance of the sort of enabling environment in which all those different stakeholders and private companies operate. Because clearly, if you're a bank, you can make a contribution to detect and trade-based money laundering and you're a distributor and a shipping line, etc. But if you don't have a customs authority that at least opens some containers and at least takes some action, then all of that is worth relatively little. And we have discussed the competing incentives that countries sometimes have in terms of combating illicit trade. Mm -hmm. So free trade zones are a kind of uh, extreme example of what can um, go wrong in the sense of countries not necessarily having the right priorities. But clearly one of the issues is simply the investment in the customs capacity mm -hmm. to do their job. And that is key to fighting trade-based money laundering, but also, frankly, a range of other crimes that we have sort of also touched upon. So trade in counterfeit products, drug trafficking, arms trafficking, and all the other types of illicit trade that are not necessarily money laundering per se, but they're also criminal offenses that involve trade to some extent. And you need to have a proper law enforcement response to that. So in a way, when we speak about the private sector response, we should also always sort of make this obvious but important point about the governments doing their part as well. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really interesting point about how, how all the different players in this are incentivized to act. Because it, it's certainly from the research we did, it's not clear that they're going to be incentivized by trade-based money laundering or, or the desire to do something about it. Clearly, a lot of people share that when you ask them, but fundamentally, you know, shipping companies, that that's not going to be their primary focus. They're worried about other things. But a, a good case in point, uh, we were told by one shipping company that we, t we talked to, um, they do care. You know, we asked them, what, what checks do you do about whether what you're being asked to ship is actually what's in the box? 
And they said, well, we do care to some extent. We care if it's going to catch fire or explode because that, that's dangerous. Um, and we also care uh, about whether we're being defrauded. Uh, there was a really great example of where um, a shipping company was used to, to ship a big box of car parts from, from one country to another um, and when they came to deliver it <clears throat> they found that the delivery entity didn't exist uh, so they opened the box to see what they were lumbered with and they found that it wasn't car parts at all it was a load of waste scrap tires it turns out those are really expensive to get shot of if you've got those and so effectively the the person who booked that shipping had just got disposal of a shipping container load of waste tires for the cost of shipping them across the world was a hell of a lot cheaper than doing it legitimately um, and the shipping company was just lumbered with a box full of spare tires um, uh, and so they care about that because they, they they've effectively been defrauded there um, and so they do care they will do checks but they'll do checks for that purpose for the purpose of fraud if only they they could share that information that they learn about any discrepancies between what's in the box and what it says on the on the, on the um the paperwork actually that could be really useful um and when they do a check for example to see whether the person we've been asked to deliver to do they actually exist is that a legitimate entity the person who's booked the, the 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 trade in that case well clearly they didn't want to get traced after all this so they gave false details so there's all these other types of crime there's identity fraud and there's there's all sorts of things going on here um all that information it was put together would create a rich intelligence picture um, but the incentives to do that are going to be very different in all the different uh, stakeholder groups and, and industries and organisations. And I wonder, John, if to some extent all of us might be guilty of misbranding the problem in the sense that I think we're being intellectually rigorous when we say trade-based money laundering and money laundering is the movement of criminal proceeds, blah, blah, blah. But as you say, what normal people care about is the actual crime that's in a way behind money laundering so you know drug trafficking or fraud and especially the kind of crime that can either hurt the person who's involved or bring them into disrepute and so the question is you know should we perhaps talk more about detecting uh, containers you know stuffed with um, you know criminal products with counterfeit products with uh, products that are being used in a way, as a substitute for drug revenue, sort of making it very clear that there is this immediately obvious link to the criminal activity and that trade-based money laundering is not just something very ethereal in the sort of nebulous realm of financial crime that's kind of entirely separate from what people wonder and are concerned about in their ordinary lives. Yeah, I think that's absolutely, absolutely spot on. Um, I mean, you could argue that at one point we, we talked about... Um, should, the, should we refer to this as trade-based crime? Yeah, there's a whole range of crimes. But actually, then, I think as time went on, as we talked to more and more uh, individuals and, and organizations, I've started to think of it almost as flip it around the other way. Um, so it's using the fact that uh, criminals engage in trade in order to do their other crimes as a richer source of intelligence. So for me, the the opportunity for, for the world, sounds a bit grand, is is to do a better job of exploiting the fact that all these criminals are doing trade whilst they're carrying out you know, narcotics trade, human trafficking, corruption, etc., etc. Use the fact, do a better job of using the fact that they're using the global trade system to harvest intelligence about their other activities, those predicate offences that are causing the harm, and effectively turn the tables, use it against them. I think that's a very helpful way of looking at it. It's exactly what's going on in, for example, the world of counter-terrorist financing, because in counter-terrorist financing, the financial footprint of terrorists is just one 
albeit relatively important source of information about what criminals are up to and how we can identify you know, the, the people who are engaged in terror. And if we, in a way, apply the same mindset to trade-based money laundering, then I think the inescapable conclusion is exactly what you've outlined. Fantastic. So to, to wrap this up, I suppose one final question I'd like to ask both of you is, to our listeners, what should be the next step? And you know, if they work in government or law enforcement, if they work for a financial institution, or perhaps they're uh, listening uh, as somebody that's involved in global trade, what what steps should they take? What are the next things that they should do? Uh, do you think to help bring about the sort of utopian vision that, that you and uh, Anton, you and John have um, have uh, proposed? So I think uh, on the government side, uh, you need to think about what is it that potentially makes your jurisdiction attractive to trade-based money laundering or trade-based crime? What are the risk factors that you can personally address within your jurisdiction? And in a way, do you have enough money that you invest in your, for example, customs capacity? And do customs people and other law enforcement officers have the right uh, legal wherewithal to tackle the problem of illicit trade and trade-based money laundering. And on the private sector side, I guess it's very difficult to be prescriptive, especially if you're not operating at the coal face and you don't have this sort of years of experience that tell you this just doesn't feel right. But I guess the principle is that you need to try and get information that you think might be relevant and you need to constantly hone your skills in analyzing that information and thinking, well, what does it tell me about this customer that I'm dealing with? Yeah, maybe I'd build on that last point. I think um, uh, looking at this from, from the outside in, if you like, oh, we want, to, we want to make the world a better place by getting rid of TVML. We would love uh, all the industries and the shipping firms all that, to do all sorts of extra checks and, and, uh, and take all sorts of extra steps, but, but ultimately they're not going to. That, that, it just, the industry is just not going to work like that. But it, I think it's okay. I think they can act in their own, in, own interests. I mean, the, the example I gave of, of the fraud against the shipping company might be instructive there. Um, I think if, if those industries can look at other places where they could trade information with other stakeholders in this, in this globally interconnected world of trade, they could do their own. They could serve themselves better and serve wider society better. You know, if, if the shippers, they want, uh, it's in their interest to not be defrauded and not have false identities given them and what have you, for all the reasons I've described. Um, there are other entities that could share information with them that would help them to achieve that end. And actually, likewise, there's information the shippers about have about the trade that those other entities could use to their benefit. So I think, for me, um, it's a bit of a... Of a, of a long shot, if you like, it's a bit of a grand aim, but I think the the way to improve this is for uh, organisations to to for us to find ways to incentivise these data trades between organisations, and of course find ways to overcome all of the associated hurdles of security and privacy and what have you. Technology will help that. There are lots of uh, ways that technology can come to the aid of of doing that securely and in a privacy enhancing way and so on. But ultimately, the, the first step to that is to find the incentive alignment. John, Anton, thank you both very much. If you'd like to really dive into this topic, Anton and his team are publishing a number of research notes at rusi.org forward slash commentary. You can also find out more at basystems.com forward slash banking insights. Many thanks for listening to the Intelligence Download. 
Don't forget to subscribe via iTunes, Podbean or your favourite podcast app.